Mark, what is your job as a sound mixer on The Hateful Eight, and what does it entail? Um, I'm the production sound mixer, so the equivalent in the music world would be the uh, creative recording producer. I come each day, I deal in close quarters with all the performers, the cast, to capture their original performance. And um, with Quentin, it's a very specialized circumstance because um, I've been with him for over tw almost 22 years. We've done everything from Dust Till Dawn forward. We met on Desperado actually when he came and cameoed. Um, and Quentin's the only director I've ever worked with where we've never replaced a single word uh, in post-production on any film we've done together. It's, it's, a unique, it's a unique situation and it has to do with, with what we do, but also in conjunction with his commitment to capturing the performance he sees that day, and that's going to be in the movie, period. Um, so that's what I do. I capture those original performances. Interesting. And what is the reason that he doesn't want to change a word? What, he wants that authenticity of that first... Uh, can you tell me a little more about why it's specifically done like that? He, he believes it's part of his process. He it's pretty much old school, too. He believes in the work that happens on the day. He, for example, there's no video village on a Quentin show. There's no video assist. Quentin's in the room. He's sitting at the camera with the actors side by side right there, just like we're sitting here right now. And it's a, it's, it builds an environment of, of support and trust for the cast. And it's, it's hands-on for him as a director. He's not sort of two-stepping it. He's not watching his movie on TV live every day. Mm -hmm. And that principle is applied to everything else. He looks for reality as an environment to support the character development, to support the story arc. Everything is about that. Um, what I do is, 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 as I'm a musician in his orchestra, a, si a sideman, session player, and like everyone else, Bob Richardson, the cameraman, or or Fred, the editor, we, we are intensely committed to our instrument, but our instrument comes into full play when we play in the orchestra together. And so Quentin is a f real throwback to old school Hollywood filmmaking. His films may not be that for people as they experience it, but the process is. It's a, he's a perpetual student, and we all are. We're, we're, film, we're film crazies, and, and he's the lead film crazy in that, you know, every, we, you never say scene 25-7, uh, you know, uh, Apple Baker, it's, it's Abelgantz, or, you know, there's always a game, there's always play, there's music on the set, there's this environment of creativity, okay. um, and he's comfortable in his own skin, and we all are as well, he wants you to bring your game, mm. it's, it's, there's not a, there's not an ego wall, there's no fear, there's just, let's do it. You know, downbeat on one, no rehearsal, let's go. That's an interesting statement. So if he's comfortable in his own skin, then that sets sort of the tone. You know how they say stuff rolls downhill? So if he's, yes. if he's comfortable, then it sounds like everyone else feels it's okay to be that way as well. Best idea of the day gets $5. Oh, nice. I like that. Okay. You know, it's like, uh -huh. it's bring it, you know. But it's in context, you know. You, you, there's joy in that, and there's serious, it's a serious thing too, you know. We're here to, we're here to do this. Right. Is, right. is mm -hmm. the piece, you know. It's not, um, we, and we should have a good time. The, but fun does not mean um, disconnect. Fun means the, thing, the work is the fun. The right, work right. is the fun, you know. So how much notice does he have to give you? Will you change your schedule and drop everything, or, or he gives you a little more than that? Um, he's been incredibly um, generous in that. I usually have a six to eight month lead on something coming down the road, uh, you know. This is going to happen here. Want to know? Can you clear your schedule? And and I do. You know, as we all do, because it's a unique place. You know. 
Now, I know Quentin admits that his dialogue is not always for everyone, and that it doesn't matter on... He admitted that? Oh, I, yes, or one of our interns, <laughs> i.e. Okay. us, found it, okay. um, and that it doesn't matter sort of the quality of the actor, but it has to be uh, the timing. Not, not every actor can deliver the lines with the timing and the humor that he wants. So, do you see any difference in some of the preparation with some of the actors for his style of delivering lines and filmmaking? I think what I've seen, uh, and this, this has grown from the early days to particularly the last four or five films, I would say Inglorious, maybe Kill Bill really, but in Kill, Kill Bill and Glorious to me were sort of transitional uh, films to a different kind of filmmaking for Quentin from my experience of dealing with, I mean I deal with a lot of different directors, but his, his evolution through my eyes um, was to let those characters emerge in pre-production through a pro, you know rehearsal, they'll do a read-through. They'll be you know uh, weeks of you know. For example, on this film, they built a uh, proxy set in Los Angeles for three, four, five, uh, four weeks of rehearsal, so the actors could actually be in the environment for their rehearsal. It wasn't the set we were going to film? It was you know because that was at 10,000 feet in Telluride, above Telluride but it was a place for the actors to find their characters in the environment in which they're going to operate. Because in many ways, it's analogous to a stage play. Um, they're all in the same physical space for, for almost two-thirds of the movie. Um, and in widescreen, in this, this ultra Panavision format, um, it's a dramatically different approach visually because uh, unlike narrower frames, you're almost in a master type frame all the time. It, it, the frame can include the close-up, the medium shot, and the wide shot all at once because there's so much geography available. Um, and how you do that, how you do that aesthetically. Um, so, so the whole sense of putting on a play-like performance comes out of that rehearsal where the characters are at least centered um, um, by the, for the actors with Quentin in preparation. Um, that said, the true characters really don't emerge until we actually start rolling film. So, but the templates are there. Templates are there. Like Jennifer, Jennifer's character was a revelation, but it was a revelation that happened when we got there. You know, she brought a certain kind of crazy that was, in, you know, completely original. She's amazing. Um, and I, I don't know if that was your experience, but you know, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it really her. took the other actors. Now they had someone to play against because you needed that, needed that back pressure from her character for the other characters to work, and. Um, he knows that. He's got great instincts about that. I, I love what he does with casting and particularly how the ensemble, there's no, there are no egos on this set. Okay. And there never are. He doesn't allow it. Interesting. So even though it is like a, a, a band, let's say, there's no front man that's sort of the... the you have a conductor. Okay. You know, and you have a score called a script. You have a conductor called, called a director. Um, so there, it's not a democracy. There's a leadership process, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a collaboration. Nice. You know, I, 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 you want your best you know, artists to come together, you know, every shot's hand, handmade, so, you know, it doesn't happen in a box, it doesn't come preset, it's a hundred people working to get that, that two-minute thing to happen so it fits in a mosaic, so when we're sitting alone in a dark room or with a group watching the movie, we experience these as real characters on a real journey in, re in, in this space and time that, but it's an illusion, but that illusion doesn't work unless you build that on the inside, you know, build that from the characters. Sound challenges in Telluride versus <laughs> the soundstage in Los Angeles, what were the two differences? Great question. Um, very different situations, very different. Telluride was all real environment, you know. Uh, first, we went there for snow, but had no snow for a really long time, and, and so we had to uh, compensate 
um, in terms of what we would shoot when. Uh, we'd go inside more than we had planned to originally, those kinds of things, or create snow. And there's 30 different ways of creating snow mechanically, you know, and each one has its issues. And from our side, they're, they're audible. So how you deal with that is, in pre-production, a lot of conversations, uh, different kinds of fan configurations. The, two, the, the diameters of tubes that blow have to be wider. The pumps that, that blow them have to be further away. Um, so all of the you know, minutia of that prep has to happen so that when you're there and on the day, your focus is on this, not that. So that your focus is on the performance and capturing that. So, so in Telluride, you're above 10,000 feet. So oxygen, everybody's you know, weeks before they adapt to the altitude. You're in sub-zero. When you get to work each morning, it's between minus 10 and minus 20 before the sun has hit the sky. And at the warmest part of the day, might be 10 or 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you're going to locations that are not normally accessible on foot. So you're, or if you would drive to them, you'd ruin the snow that has to be in the shot. So you'd go to a drop-off point and be on a, a snowmobile to another point, and then you'd hike up a, a ridge, maybe a quarter of a mile, with your gear on and packed on your back, and, and you'd get up there and settle in, and everyone times times 100, because you're doing that, but so is everyone else, uh, crane parts and just, you know, or they're in there the night before. So the logistics are like intense, very intense, and they're intense in an environment that's very challenging to your body. So everyone had to sort of, that's the Telluride part of this. And the, that sounds difficult, but it actually created a kind of energy, not just for us, but for the actors, that they really had this resistance of the environment. Um, that said, the gear, the things you use, the tools, the hammers and nails, they're not used to that kind of universe. So you have to have a lot of redundancy because things will fail. And you have to be very aware of the impact. If you work something in the cold, a piece of electronic gear, and then you bring it to a warm place, there's going to be condensation inside. So it's like a little rainstorm in your electronics that are designed to make it stop working at the worst possible moment. So you don't do that. You have a set of cold things. You have a set of warm things. The cameras were built in 1979 for far and away, and the lenses were from 1955, you know, from Ben-Hur and Khartoum. So they had to re construct the cameras down to the ground and then rebuild them. Viscosity of lubricants had to be adaptable to the cold, so they had to be less viscosity because it would become more, um, the, the, the lubricants would go slower in that colder weather, so you had to, I, I mean, it's wow. just hundreds of those little details. They built custom 2,000-foot magazines for 70 millimeter because no one shot 2,000-foot magazines before, so Quint could do these longer play-like takes. You know, and so the cameras had to do that, but they had to be quiet enough so that they wouldn't create a problem for the dialogue. So there's a conversation with Panavision and, and Gregor Tavernier, who's Bob Richardson's long-term you know, camera assistant, and just um, all those details have to be engaged in. So that's, that's the rough environment out there. The stage, it's refrigerated. It's 20 to 25 degrees, and they're pumping in humidity 95% humidity to get the breath. That's why we're refrigerating the stage. Even though we're inside, you have to know that it's always cold inside. And if you notice all that breathing, none of that's CGI. <laughs> none of that happened in a computer. That's in the room. That's everyone is, you know, even in the stage, very cold. And in the stage, there's no real snow to be had. So there's a greater um, application of, of mechanical effects for snow and it's in an enclosed space. So the vulnerability of the dialogue to that is much greater. So it's a constant um, collaboration with the effects people. The machines have to go further away. You have to turn it down a little bit. 
this is a very quiet piece of dialogue, but it's just what we did on the setup before, but it's not the same because we're in a different physical space. The microphones are in a different place. We have to adapt even though it seems the same. That kind of give and take every day, every shot, every minute. And to stay on it, stay in the game. You can never sort of back off from that. And, and it's, it, it's never created tension because everybody knows that what you're doing is to try and dial it in so that when the camera rolls, all that's disappeared, and it's just the space where the performance can happen. That's, that's sort of, you know, our core collective mission. The, the wind sound throughout the film, which was great because I felt physically cold the entire time I was watching it. I did too, but not because of the sound. <laughs> it was all me muscle memory. <laughs> Honestly, it was... Right, right from being there in Telluride or, or the trip up. Just cold as an everyday thing is, it's a different perspective, you know. You know why they drink so much in Scandinavia after a show. <laughs> sure, sure, to keep warm and, yeah. and, and there's not really much you can do, of course, when the weather's like that. But with the wind sound, I'm assuming a lot of that was all after effects. That's, you're not actually It's a combination. Oh, um, really? Some of it is about um, helping mask some of the mechanical stuff, but, but really, and this was from the outset, Wiley Stateman, who's been with Quentin since, uh, since uh, uh, Kill Bill, um, brilliant, brilliant artist, um, and Mike Minkler's the other trio of the three of us that have been with Quentin for a long time in the sound side of things. We get together before a movie. We sat and combed through the script page by page, line by line, you know, weeks in advance of, of even the, the, the scout pre-production to look at, brainstorm, talk about approach to this. And wind from the very outset was, and this came from Quentin as well, is a is sort of a, sub, a subliminal character in the, in the film. It, this this um, blizzard that's there is part of what's driving the stagecoach forward and it's what's what you always have a sense of the, the de desolate you know, isolation inside minis because it's always there outside. So the wind is kind of, I don't know if you notice this, the music in this film compared to Quentin's other films is relatively sparse. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it really isn't because the wind is that music. And the wind is, is being used in so many ways, and Wiley was so skillful with this in terms of punctuation, um, supporting a moment, um, having a silence that's underlined as a silence because the wind is, is, is there on its own. It was um, a very, very design-oriented piece, and we got material that's real wind in the real place on the real days, but um, it's, all, it's, all a con uh, it's all a creative construction around the story arc, around the character arc, you know, so if there's something that, and this is true about almost all the elements in Quentin's film, whether it's a prop, whether it's, it's a piece of dialogue, whether it's, a, it's, it's a, you know, the timing of something. The music's all real, the piano playing happens there on the set in the day with the dialogue. He doesn't break it away. Jennifer's uh, guitar uh, is a real thing. She prepped for months with that. Oh, and that's excellent. <laughs> do you know about the guitar, by the way? No, is there a story behind oh, that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's a story. The guitar is a rare, was a rare museum piece from the Martin Guitar Museum that was on loan to the production and they had made about a half a dozen Chinese uh, duplicates of it for the breaking piece, right? Right. So we're on the day doing this and she's playing the real guitar because the tone and the sound of that guitar is very unique. It's a, it's a you know, 140 year old guitar, you know, worth tens of thousands of dollars and for some reason, for some reason, no one, no one, and Kurt felt so bad about this, no one told Kurt about that. So we're in take, we're in that take, take one, and Kurt shatters 
the real guitar. Oh no! And if, I don't know if you see Jennifer's face when she goes. If you see the film again, watch her face at the guitar shatter. That's because she's seeing a rare and irreplaceable museum piece suddenly being shattered. So everyone's freaked out in that room except Quentin. <laughs> There's a little curl of a smile on the corner <laughs> of his lip because something happened that no one could predict and it was in Jennifer's performance because that was a real, a real moment. And, and, and the postscript that's really great about this is the Martin Guitar people got notified about it. I, I heard this secondhand, but within a day or so, and they had two, thi two things. One, two things they said. One was, do you need another one? <laughs> and two, can we have all the pieces for, to put on display at the museum, please? Because it's such an interesting story. We sure. really would like to be, you know, have that incorporated in, our, in the story of our guitar history. <laughs> so, Very so much, yeah. Mm -hmm. So art, art is, a, is a surprise, art is risk. And, um, and sometimes you get a special thing, what might seem like a negative, but th that's a classic Quentin moment, you know, that, that uh, all the elements are there, but something unexpected happens. That's fascinating. Capturing sound, what are you using? At, at some point, are you lav miking people? Is it, you know, what, what, like how is this working? My tools are like hammers and nails. Okay, I use, I have a broad palette of things and I, t I, I make selections that have to do with the tonality of the actor, where are we in context with the character, how are we experiencing this character, is it more of an internal thing, what, you know, wh where are we in the character's arc in the story. So I use all the traditional tools, um, I'll use uh, a Japanese mic called the Sankin uh, for boom work frequently and, and Sheps and, and, and uh, Neumanns, and um, I use uh, a Danish uh, lavalier a lot, uh, made by DPA, um, and also Japanese Sankin lavaliers and other tools. Many different mics, that, that doesn't cover it. But um, it's, it's not about technique, it's about context. So I try, I, I do, and I teach on this. I, you need to know all of those pieces and how to apply them, but you need to not lose sight of that the real key tool is the filmmaker. The sound man has to be a filmmaker just like the cameraman has to be a filmmaker, has to understand the director's intent and the context of the particular situation. And if you um, think in those terms, it creates flow on the set. You're, you're responding intuitively or premeditated, either way, based on what's, what are we doing? What's the shot? What's the scene? Where does the scene fit in against the other scenes? You know, how is the whole piece of cloth going to be affected by the choices I make in this particular moment? And they all have to have a um, an integration, you know. I try not to come with an ideology because the day I come and think I know the whole thing is the day I should quit because I stop learning and I'm not open to what we're what we're really trying to get to happen here. Um, so I don't know if that that answers your question, but it's 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 an, it's a really important piece to me that that I, I don't come with a preset notion of a pro. So all of those things are true, but it all goes towards the idea of constructing a sound, a mix. Um, in the moment that's a lot like playing an instrument, a musical instrument, that keeps us inside that character. That's my threshold. When we watch it as an audience, are you believing that this is this character and they're in this environment having this journey? If everything that we do supports that. So if there's a noise that happens that's unexpected, my threshold is, did it take us out of the scene? Did it take us away from the character? If the answer is no, I'm not as emotionally disturbed by that moment because I know that the core thing is being protected. If it does, then we're in a conversation, Quentin or whoever the director is. Here's, a, here's an exposure, here's a vulnerability. It's, it's sometimes it's just a look, you know, and it's not a big conversation, let's go again.
you know, because he does not walk away without having that in the can, period. He just doesn't. He's absolutely, failure cannot cope with persistence, and he is the most persistent person I've ever seen in a director's seat. And I love that, because that's how I feel.